0: You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the April 28th episode of Carbon Removal Newsroom. Today, we will be focusing on business. And so, as always, I have Susan Sue, who is a partner focused on climate investing at Toba Capital. She also serves as a board member at the Carbon Business Council and a board advisor to the Environmental Voter Project. Hello, Susan. How are you today?
0: Hi, Radhika. I'm great. Good.
1: And very exciting, we have Josh Santos, co-founder and CEO of Noya. We've talked about the company before, so really happy to have you on board today, Josh. Thanks for joining.
2: Thanks for having me. Super psyched to be here.
1: And then I am Radhika Mulgothkar, head of supply and methodology at Nori. So it's been a big month for carbon removal funding news. Climeworks announced $650 million in new fundraising from an large group of private equity investment management firms stripe made public a close to billion dollar plan to take their cdr purchasing program to a all new level by partnering with alphabet meta mckinsey shopify and many more to pool carbon credit dollars and buy removals from companies and facilities that sometimes don't even exist yet we also are rounding out the month with the big funding news that was announced from the climate focused BC firm Lower Carbon Capital that raised $350 million to invest in carbon removal companies. And then finally, the Carbon X Prize, $151 million milestones and grants given in the first round. So there's a lot happening in the world. And I'm going to just jump in with Josh because we want to hear all about how NOIA is doing and um. And basically, yeah, what's up in your world? So how are things at Noya and what are you working on right now?
2: Yeah, thanks, Radhika, and, and thanks for thanks for uh you know, really excited to jam here with y'all. Um, you know, things that things at Noya to put it to put it short are going incredibly well. Um, for those of you who may not know what Noya is, we are Uh, essentially designing a process that radically reduces the upfront capital costs and the installation time required to perform direct air capture. In our approach, we retrofit existing pieces of industrial equipment like cooling towers and turn them into CO2 capture machines. Um, For the past few months, we have been working hard on Getting over some of the big uh, design decisions and, and design risks that have been in, in our process since we started, namely around this question of, you know, if you retrofit this cooling tower that's moving lots of air, how do you guarantee that the cooling tower is still going to work? That's been the single biggest question from the from the companies we've spoken to, and uh, and I'm really excited to say that we've been able to get around that problem. We've focused on on building it, and we have a big. Uh, yard level prototype here at our office in San Francisco that's um, that we can demonstrate both high cooling tower performance with with uh, with carbon capture. So the next step that we're working on now is developing the pilot of our technology, and that's happening here in SF as well. Uh, that's going to be um, uh, essentially a, a you know representatively sized cooling tower that we're going to plop down in the yard. And, uh, and and run as if we were cooling some industrial process so we're excited to see that come to life that's going to happen by the end of q3 of this year. And uh, and testing will start before the end of the year so we're moving fast we're rocking and rolling we're growing the team to help support that really ambitious timeline but. i've been so so proud of what our uh, our, our mighty team has been able to accomplish so far and can't wait to see what we do later on this year.
1: wow yeah that's amazing um, so i'm kind of curious. Is the question that you're getting from people, the question you expected, was the cooling tower the thing you thought would be the limiting step when you launched the company?
2: A hundred percent, yeah. If you look at what these cooling towers are doing and why they are available in such high numbers, right? The U.S. is home to 2 million of them, and so we must have bought a lot of them because they do something really well. Well, it turns out the thing they do really well is keep something cool, and that's something is usually an incredibly important aspect of some company's operation Mm -hmm. be it the piece of equipment that pasteurizes milk for dairy creamers and dairy farmers like our first build was at or some uh, central component of an hvac system for a bunch of people living or working inside of a building or on an industrial scale the thing that is providing electricity as you burn trash to Prevent methane from getting into the atmosphere and create electricity from that. Whatever the thing is that you're trying to keep cool, the cooling tower is incredibly important to ensuring you can actually do that. So you can imagine that if the cooling tower is damaged or somehow compromised, the main thing that the people are using it for is also compromised. So we expected a lot of pushback and questions around it, and uh, and we're at the early stages of, of showing people the updated concepts that we have and some of the data we've been able to collect with our model, and the response has been really excited. So that is exactly what we knew was going to happen uh, when we started, and, and we're really excited to now be able to back up our claims with some actual numbers and data.
1: That's great. A uh, High risk, high reward. I get, you know, that's amazing. Um, so obviously, CDR is fast changing in the world. And um we were just talking before the show even started, how you were like when we first started, which was only like two years ago, but it feels like much longer, I'm sure. Um, have you seen a real difference in the type of attention you're receiving? Has it been what you expected? Greater, less, something completely different.
2: Yeah, I I um definitely uh it's been it's been greater and um, and I think that's great because uh, when we started, our our business plan was actually to uh, capture CO two from the air and sell it to people that were going to use it. People like small businesses mm-hmm. in 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 food and beverage. Right? Every bar you've ever been to or restaurant you've ever been to has a tiny tank of CO two sitting behind it. And so we thought, well nobody's really paying for carbon. Uh, It wasn't even. we didn't even call it carbon removal at that time, you know, two years ago. Right. Like uh, it was like we nobody's paying us to pull CO2 out of the air yet. And so let's do this other thing that can make us money now so that when there becomes a market for that, we can we can switch and do that. And the whole thing has appeared much faster than we thought it was going to. So we just skipped that first step of bottling up CO2 and reselling it. And we just are now focused solely on removing carbon and uh, and have been gaining a lot of attention through that. I think there's, you know, all of the public stuff that people uh, people have seen and that you mentioned at the beginning, right, some of the frontier climate and the Shopify and all these things that people know. And then there are so many other conversations happening behind the scenes with companies that have not said anything publicly about wanting to get involved with purchasing carbon removal. So all of, you know, all of these things are happening at a much faster rate than at least I thought that they were, maybe, maybe smarter people think you know saw it coming and that's great if they did but i didn't and so i'm happily proven wrong here and am able to kind of react accordingly and i think Norway is all the better for it
1: yeah all right um susan kind of curious you know you just heard what josh had to say about this acceleration and interest in carbon removal uh did you see that coming and what do you think it, i mean we've talked about it a bit but like explicitly what do you think driving this explosion of interest that feels like has happened in the last five, six months.
0: You know, I think it's hard to claim that anybody saw it coming specifically, but I will speak to what I think is driving it. I think there's a a number of different things. I mean, yeah, so it's a confluence. Like number one, you know, I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later um, in the show, but like, for example, the Frontier announcement and just the amount of Um, what I call headline equity that carbon removal is starting to get, not just from Frontier, but from some of the other things that we will also discuss later in the show, um, creates a, uh, a sense of kind of irrational omnipresence, like this is becoming a thing with a capital T, which mobilizes a lot of resources, both on the supply side, so like amazing entrepreneurs like Josh putting down whatever they were doing before and applying themselves here, um, but also capital. And so, you know, I think a billion dollars via Frontier, the Advance commit that's like a really big deal, but it's also all of the um, investment capital that's coming in. Um, and I think if, you know, if I put my investor hat on, the reason why I think CDR, carbon removal overall, is um, kind of seemingly surprising us right now is because it's possibly just following a j-curve where you see a little bit of a slowdown you see some initial you know something that looks like a loss at first and then it really doesn't look like a loss after that um we have to remember that a lot of carbon removal not all of it there's always like nature-based as well but like on the non-nature based side it's so technology driven and if there is one thing we know about technology it's that Uh, once it starts moving, it starts moving really fast, it snowballs and that's the promise of Silicon Valley. Um, And I think that's why a lot of uh, venture capitalists are really interested in um, carbon removal, specifically technology-driven carbon removal, because sure, it's like really hard and expensive and all that stuff today, but um, it's all about that learning curve. And uh, there is this promise of a steeper um, learning curve there, steeper, I mean, in a good way, like where you you know sort of get more return faster um, than with some other alternative technologies for mitigating the climate crisis that may already sort of be a little bit more mature and um, a little bit more in their later adoption slash plateau phase. So I think all of that has come together and uh, created this um, just uh, I'll say it again, but it really feels like it's a snowball effect, and things are really starting to take off for carbon removal, which I think is really, really exciting. Now it's still early; there will still definitely be some troughs up, up ahead, but I have no doubt that that will also be followed by, just as a you know J curve demonstrates to us, will no doubt be followed by um, more peaks.
1: So Josh, uh, Susan was just sort of alluding to the fact that the technology is accelerating, but it's still very early technology, right? And and there are other maybe nature-based solutions that are more clear in the carbon removal, or more clear that they can immediately remove carbon, right? So how do you go about um, pitching to investors, or do you even need to pitch at this point, because they're so eager, about investing in your company and but waiting for the carbon removal credits to come through? What do they want to hear?
2: I always like to start these conversations just by setting the global framework on this, which is that if you believe that there will be a happy world in the future that has successfully kept warming above or excuse me below 1.5 degrees Celsius, then you must also believe that there has to be an incredibly large carbon removal market of at least one gigaton per year in size but potentially up to 10 and and the two can't exist without the other as we know because of what the IPCC has been telling us recently one has to come with the other and so i always like to set that framework and so then the next question is okay well how do you sort of fit into that and how do you scale up to achieve those sizes those amounts and i always like to say that we started out by you know there are many ways i think you can approach building something that is large and 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 um, successfully successful at taking large amounts of CO2 out of the air. You can go for building big things that have low economies of scale. you can go for building many small things that capture a lot of things at, at high cost. And what we're trying to think about is how we can get the best of scaling uh, something that is cheap to build at the very beginning to de-risk the scaling of something large down the line when the market is ready to sort of absorb that large capEx spend. Um, And so our approach at the very beginning, where we're retrofitting pieces of equipment to to keep our capex low and our time to deploy low, was done to essentially mitigate the fact that the market for carbon removal is both unpredictable and small, right, relatively speaking. If if I were to start a company and say I have this billion-dollar capex investment that I'm going to build to sell into what is today a billion-dollar market, that's a hard thing, I think, to get investors to wrap their heads around. But if I say I have a $1 million unit to sell into this billion dollar, and I can build 10 more of them in the next year, um, then that becomes a much easier thing to actually start to understand. And so when I think about how we scale, we're actually kind of hacking the lending side of it right now a bit because of our low capital spend requirements to actually get our process out into the world. And so we are by no means writing off the future where we are building these huge, you know. Hundreds of millions of dollar, billion dollar mega, plant, mega plants that that will get us incredibly low costs. We're just going about it in a way that is capitally light right now, while all of these things are starting to be built up, so that we can scale, learn, remove, and uh, and and continue growth. And so it tends to follow that pathway in terms of in terms of um, you know how we how we how we pitch investors on carbon removal generally and what we're doing specifically within that, because there are you know, if 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 what Susan says is true, right, and there's a trough and then a big peak and then troughs and then big peaks, and there will always be these periods where investors get excited and money flows, and then they and then they don't, and and money doesn't. And so, I think having a solution that can serve in those hard parts will help us survive to the point where we have solutions that will be able to serve in the in the in the in the big parts.
1: Yeah, I definitely think about capital costs a lot in my job and. It, it uh, your approach is, makes a ton of sense, right? Like you lower the, the risk piece around the capital and that makes more people interested because we all know it needs to happen. And I think another uh, indication about why uh, around the durability of carbon removal is like the level of excitement from the generations that are at least younger than me that are coming in and applying for these jobs. I think Susan, you re- recently tweeted about they're feeling, fielding thousands of job applicants. Um, so I'm wondering, Josh, are you seeing that same thing? Are you getting overwhelmed with applications and and what's kind of the range of people? Does it tend to be the younger folks or is it all over the board? Who are you, who's interested in this
2: field? Yeah, the amount of people trying to get into climate is so exciting and into carbon removal specifically, super exciting to see. We um i think we posted we posted a, a few open jobs a few weeks ago and within the first week had something like you know hundreds of hundreds of applications across like six different positions that we had to field and 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 uh, manage and it was incredibly it was incredibly challenging it's like it's really hard to kind of vet through those resumes and then have to do you know it's exciting because a lot of these people are so passionate about what about the problem that we're solving and i just i draw parallels to I mean, even my time in, you know, I was i was at Tesla before starting NOIA and everybody there is passionate, you have to be, I think, to work there, but the, the there, there are some people that aren't, and the level of passion of applicants we see is just so, so large. Um, and I think that the, you know, headline equity, I love that term, Susan, I'm going to use it, uh, the headline equity of car removal, I think, is definitely helping with that, but I also think that people are just, and especially younger people, are realizing that Th- that that like we have to be active in this solution like we have we ha- if we want the problem to be solved we have to go out and solve it and that's what i told myself before starting noi and ultimately what got me into it i was looking for jobs in carbon removal and i was like oh this actually doesn't exist why not and then here i am with the company <laughs> um, but it it is so so exciting to see it and i think as as it continues to get more and more popular we see the uh, the the average age creep up and up as well in terms of people that are interested in taking positions, right? So I definitely agree that the people that are most excited are people coming out of college or maybe have been working in in in, in you know some job for a year or two, but that age is starting to, to to grow up, and and we see founders of other tech companies coming and looking to work in operations, or we see incredibly experienced engineers coming and looking to lead big teams, and so there's a lot of excitement and a lot of passion and a lot of vigor around the people that are applying at least to positions with us and and others as well across climate tech that i that i know about and it is inspirational for me to see um i had somebody on my team tell me that they get a lot of pride and love telling other people about what they do here at noia when they're at cocktail parties or whatever um and for me that's the best feeling i could ever ask for you know the 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 feeling of somebody that's on this team here getting the most amount of pride out of everything they've done in their life is awesome and so I think that climate specifically has that unique impact and because of it people people want to work in it
1: yeah I feel pretty fortunate that I got a job honestly so thank you Nori for hiring me Um, but now I'm going to pivot a little bit but Susan already touched on it, but about Frontier and that huge announcement. Um, So Susan, I want to hear, kind of get more of your opinion on what did you think of that Frontier announcement? I mean, a billion dollars is a lot. And how do you feel that, how big of a step is it really towards scaling CDR?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this actually uh, ties right into what Josh was saying about the, the flood of talent um, look, a billion dollars is a lot and it kind of isn't, I don't know, it buys you a lot less these days. Maybe we're all just like numb to the billions now. But from the standpoint of impressions value, I always think like, okay, if you're a brand marketer, we always, let me just give me a moment to take you on a different path. But um, you know, big brands like Coca-Cola, Capital One, whoever—they're—they're they're paying money to advertise on Facebook. They're losing money on all of the advertising platforms. They don't care about getting a click-through or ROI or any of that stuff. All they care about is just getting their name, um, getting those words—you know, C O C A C O L A—like getting that in front of your eyes a few more times because they realize how valuable simply a brand impression is um, in our world. And I think this is an incredible amount of free brand value impressions value that's coming into CDR. And a lot of that is what's driving, um, you know, this flood of interest that we're seeing. There's also, it's not just the volume, right? There's also a sense of prestige. If you look at frontier, the companies that are associated with it are companies that have been building their own brand equity across, um, decades, actually. Stripe is one of the, uh, coolest companies in tech. And some people think that it's because of the climate commitments, but I would actually say it's because it solves a huge problem. And Patrick and John Collison are just awesome entrepreneurs that um, have been really smart about a lot of things before they turned their attention to climate change. They're lending their brand, all of those companies that are part of the announcement are lending their brand value to um, what could otherwise have been a you know, quite nerdy niche uh, corner of the climate mitigation space, and and making it this thing that like, wait, eight months ago nobody even knew what this was. Eight months ago nobody could understand Josh when he was trying to explain how Noia was going to work and scale up, and now everybody is suddenly um, becoming an expert, and it's a status symbol. I mean, it it just it just is, and I think that's wonderful actually. The prestige value of Working at a climate company, especially the harder and more technologically challenging ones, the prestige value of investing in those companies, I think, is driving um, a lot of the momentum that we're seeing. And that, to me, just to take a step back from the actual dollar amount, is one of the most important things that something like Frontier brings to the table because it you know, garners all of that attention, but it also catalyzes a lot more than a billion dollars down the road. It's not about the billion dollars today. It's about the billions and potentially trillions of dollars that are going to flow from this because of all of the other people that are going to get there. Um, you know, get those words in their feed, so to speak, you know, get that brand in front of their eyes. Um, so yeah, I think it's really, really great. I think it's very smart as well. I would say, um, I'm sure these companies have thought about this and have thought about the way that this um type of announcement, the way that they shape it, the exact way that they structure it is really meant to be again, a catalyst as opposed to a solution in it in itself. um, and I think that's the right way to go because ultimately, it's extremely early, and I'll say it again, a billion dollars is a drop in the bucket. I mean, if you look at the, um, if you map where we are against a traditional technology adoption curve, we're what, like maybe between innovators and early adopters, we have barely even crossed the chasm yet. I mean, you you know, we could debate where exactly, but it's definitely, we're not in early majority, right? We're not in like the green zone or anything. And so um, the more that we can essentially leverage I don't mean this in a bad way, if the more that we can leverage hype and energy towards something, dollars are a form of that. Uh, But so is, you know, human resources, knowledge resources, all of those resources, the more that we can leverage that, um, the sooner and more likely we will be to get to um, everybody else, bring them on board. So I think it's really, really positive. Um, And I'm excited to see this as a beginning and then you know what kind of follows from this over the next 12 to 18 months
1: so i'm curious uh, to hear from both of you you just talked a lot susan about the brand but who is it reaching like is this sort of only within like you said a niche a certain subset of people everybody knows coca-cola right but or is this reaching countries like in Africa and in India? Is this reaching people in their 60s and 70s? Or is this really about what I kind of with Josh and I were talking about a little bit earlier, like the younger generation and kind of Western focused? Uh, do other countries see it in the same way outside of our New York, Europe, European, North American kind of that lens? Josh, I'll start with you. Curious what you think.
2: Yeah, I, I think there's. Um... I think that it is absolutely visible to every single group we just mentioned, though not in the amount that we need it to be yet. There is a lot of space for us to continue to tell the stories of why these types of technologies actually matter, why they're important. And I think especially about how we can bring in uh, different types of frontline or underserved communities is a big piece of this, this sort of like work of, of helping people understand the importance of of carbon removal, I think that there can sometimes be understandably this feeling that carbon removal and post combustion carbon capture are the same. And, and uh, that second one has understandably gotten a lot of pushback from a lot of these groups as I've as I've been able to understand, because it allows for the continued usage of the things that have gotten us to this collective problem in the first place. And, until we're able to, I think, effectively differentiate between those two things generally and 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 sort of tell some of the values and praises of why carbon removal is needed and important, um, then I I think we still have work to do. And, you know, we're thinking about this from the very beginning at NOIA, right? Our technology can go into these communities where the problems are being created and, and help to fix them, help to address them and bring the people along that have been most impacted and affected by that. Um, by by the way in which we've been running things for for quite some time. Um, I think that we have been doing a lot and that a lot of the things that have been announced, especially over the past month, have been getting to new eyes and audiences that have not otherwise really understood anything about pulling CO2 out of the air. And so it's been great to be able to be understood for the first time in eight months about the pitch of what Noia is doing, that's amazing. But I think we still have a long way to, to go until it gets to be to that level of understanding that um, the solar panels are at and that wind turbines are at, right? I think everybody understands that if if solar panel, then no fossil. And that is a great simple relationship to have in your mind. So like, amazing. Let's also get carbon removal to that same sort of directional understanding and, and, and shared understanding so that we can give it the resources, attention, caliber of people and at the end of the day capital that it's going to need to get to the point where it needs to get so what the early stages seem to some really exciting things in the space of 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 getting you know cdr in front of people in facebook ads and on linkedin and on twitter and uh, we need to keep that going for us to i think be successful
1: susan anything you want to add to that or other thoughts
0: yeah, I would just say in terms of like, you know, who it's reaching, I think it's reaching the right people. It's reaching people that can afford it. You know, if you think about the Tesla Roadster, it wasn't meant to be marketed towards um, you know, auto rickshaw drivers in India because well it's obvious, right? And it wasn't meant to be um marketed towards um, you know, somebody like me or any other, you know, more or less regular person even in the United States because how many of us really buy a car that is over $80,000 or $100,000, but that's okay. Because, like a lot here for we live. Uh, well, I know <laughs> Seattle has best. We need to have a special podcast just about like these certain coastal cities that have just gone crazy. Um Anyway back to this though. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw, but I'm sure you both did, but uh, EDF came out with their updated marginal abatement cost curve, which everybody who's listening to this podcast should definitely go check out. It's just, I think it's on their blog. I'm sure you can Google it and just Google, you know, EDF marginal abatement cost. I mean, it's it's just so eye-opening to think about it in terms of that, right? There are so many cheaper things that most people and most other, especially when you talk about it on a global scale most other countries can do. So no, did they really need to be like hearing about front, like like does it need to reach them right now? No, and that's totally fine. It's, it's not an inclusion exclusion thing even in my mind, it's about um, merchandising the right products to those uh, customers who can most afford to pay the high prices in order to drive further innovation such that the prices come down. And, um, I think it's quite simple in that sense. And like, you know, kind of looking at, okay, well, we're going to have to do this really at large scale, eventually, eventually it'll be the only thing that really gets us to where we really want to go, but reverse engineering, what it takes to get there, sort of like what Josh was saying at the beginning, um, you know, we're going to want to have these like massive industrial scale, uh, NOIA implementations all over the world, but today, like how do we chop that up into chunks that fit into, um, you know, the the market as it stands right now. And so I think that's what's really going on here. And um, I think it's reaching, you know, certain investors. It's reaching certain corporates. It's reaching certain um, corporates as both, you know, buyers and, and signatories. And it's reaching innovators and, and giving them something to be hopeful and excited about. Um, And then it's also reaching the audiences of those innovators so that they get hundreds of job applications for like really obscure, no offense, Josh, but like very niche jobs that require a lot of expertise. And so I think it's doing all the work that it needs to right now and um, a lot more than even I would have expected for where we are in 2022.
1: Well, um, I want to pivot a little bit because... uh... Right, we are talking about supply as if it is the our carbon credits as if there's so much but really there's very, very little of these high quality carbon removal credits. Um, so, and this fund is for over 10 years. And my question really to both of you is, can supply catch up to the demand I mean Josh I'll start with you and I'll Susan I'll pivot to you too but. You know, you were even alluding to conversations with companies that are not even public about it. So will supply catch up to demand in even the over the 10 year horizon or are, you know, what do you see the curve looking like um, for that?
2: Supplies is going to catch up. If we we start with, um, you know, let's say we start with there being uh, a, a thousand tons removed next year. If we 3X that year over year for the next eight years, we're at, we're at a billion tons. And I think that um, as we continue to see these new entrants into the purchasing side of the market, and we continue to see how that impacts policy, which is really the thing that we haven't talked about yet here because of the frontier announcements and everything else that's happened in the, pub, in the private sector, but the public sector is really what's gonna be needed, I think, to get to that level reliably over time. And um, and so, as we see more and more of these growth curves that we're talking about now, we'll see the ability for companies to be confident in the creation of additional supply and the investment required to reach additional supply happen. And um, and and that rapid growth curve I just talked about of, of at least three xing year over year for the next eight years to get us to a billion tons like that it, that is going to happen. Now, it's very likely that. The growth is actually going to happen much faster than that, right? We know that there are a few plants that are in place or, or, or under in process right now that will be installed at some date in you know 2024 or 2025, where there's something like a you know 400,000 to a million new tons enter the supply side of the market, and sort of like not a fell swoop because it's been built for a while, but um, but uh, but but becomes available and. Um, and I think as time goes on and we see more of these things start to happen, then the supply curve is actually going to ramp up much, much quicker than that. And so is it possible to get the supply there? A- absolutely. And the new entrants that are coming into the market due to a lot of the, the the names that are sort of at the leading edge of the spear here with the frontier announcement and, and other big announcements that we talked about already, those will drive the demand that's going to be needed to incentivize the supply and the supply that's going to be needed to meet that and all of that's going to push forward the policy that's going to be needed to to make that more long-standing in perpetuity
1: susan what are your thoughts
0: i think i'm kind of to the point personally where i take it for granted that the demand will both be there i don't think that's a conversation that a lot of folks are or or maybe they're they are but in my mind it's kind of like okay we know that already Um, I also have a lot of confidence that, um, the supply will step up. I mean, if you have like a big clump of hungry people hanging out together in one location, it's only a matter of time before a taco truck comes along. And then it's only a matter of time before the second one comes along and realizes that there's, um, something going on there. Right. Um, so, so I think, it's, that is less what's the question in my mind. In my mind, it's more like, okay, what we really know is it's not just a matter of, um, you know, production. It's actually in like that simplistic sense, it's actually that any producer of supply really requires an ecosystem around them. Um, They need their suppliers. They need vendors. They need a whole, um, you know, Kind of universe around them of other types of services in order to um, enable them to be successful. And so, I think what's still an open question in my mind, and probably like one of the most interesting things about this space, is what is that going to look like? Um, how are things going to co-develop? What is going to be the order of operations? What's going to come first? What's going to come next? Some of those things need to happen in tandem. How do you make that possible? And then, of course, the big question is. Um, which areas of the supply side ecosystem are going to generate the most value, but also enable the most value capture. I don't have any doubt that supply will, you know, blossom. It's just a matter of like, you know, what comes first? And are you, because I was thinking about this a lot um, as I was, you know, just preparing for today, I was thinking a lot about um, the way that hydraulic fracking became, um, such a big thing in, in the two thousands here in the U S and how we had folks like George Mitchell, who's like considered, he didn't invent it, but he was really the first guy to commercialize it. Like the father of, of, um, modern hydraulic fracking. And he doggedly pursued this vision for decades. You know, everybody thought he was crazy. I don't know if he mortgaged his own personal house, but probably something close to that. And eventually he was successful in proving out that this technology could work. It could work in the right places. It could work at the right price. And he made a bunch of money doing it. He made a few billion dollars, which is a really large sum, but But if you look around the ecosystem, there are others, for example, Harold Ham, who uh, further commercialized that same technology, who made five times how much George Mitchell ultimately made with his business. He's got like a $19 billion empire today. And interestingly, he's just made a big commitment to um, invest a quarter of a billion dollars into carbon capture and removal. So, So that's just like a whole separate story. That's really awesome. But if you look at those two um, entrepreneurs and you think about like, okay, you know, both did really well, right? Anybody here, any of us would be so grateful to um, have been a part of either of those stories if we were like really into um, oil and gas and just thinking about it from a technology adoption standpoint. But um, as an investor, would you rather have backed Mitchell and, and had a slice of that $3 billion outcome? or ham and had a slice of that 19 billion outcome. And so I think that's actually the question that's more on my mind, less or so like, oh, well, is there gonna be, uh, there will be supply, people will come. Uh, it's just a matter of, um, are you as a founder in the right spot and are you as an investor backing the right founder?
1: Interesting, Susan, I, that's a take I haven't really thought about a ton, the dreaded supply chain from the supplier perspective. Um, it's gonna be really very interesting to see how the next few years play out for sure. Um, but speaking of that, I wanna end on a little bit, the another piece of news, which is Climeworks raised $650 million, which is probably the most ever for a single CDR company. And so you were talking about on a recent show, um, Susan, how traditional lenders would have to get involved to scale CDR is this like the level you are thinking of, or are you thinking bigger? And what do you think of the structure and size of the deal generally?
0: So I don't. Um, I'm not privy to the all of the inner details of the deal, but I do believe that the 650 million was um, all or mostly equity uh, as opposed to debt, which is actually really crazy. Because I, I saw that number initially, and I was like, "Oh, okay, that's like." a hundred million of equity and then the rest must be debt or something, right? It must be because it's so much money. And, um, I actually think that it's all equity. Like it's, it's, it's hard to know what the docs say, but that's what it, it seems to be implied. Um, and so I think that's, again, it's going to be, it gives a lot of confidence to lenders, uh, because it's anchored with this, you know, with really large late stage, um, Private equity, and um, I think that it's we're gonna start seeing infrastructure players getting involved. Climeworks is um, the perfect company for that type of capital provider. And I'll say, actually, I want to just highlight something that Josh brought up earlier, which is um, you know breaking down these big projects into something very modular that doesn't require as high of capex, that doesn't require as much capital risk. I think that's really smart. I also think that not every company has to be Noia. Also, not every company has to be Climeworks. It's actually, I think, there's going to be a really rich ecosystem where um, there are going to be companies that are super modular and slot in, and from a capital perspective, right, like Noia, that's able to like make all of these steps with relatively very low infusions of capital, which I think is really great. But if you think about it from a, like, on the buy side um, of of that equity or on the, you know, debt provider side, there are folks that maybe can't invest in Anoya right now because they want to put $650 to work. GIC is not going to invest in Anoya, not because Josh isn't amazing and his company isn't amazing, but because they have so much money that they need to put to work. So actually, I think there's kind of like a flavor for everybody. Um, which is what's really cool about how rich carbon removal is starting to become, that there are climworks coexisting alongside earlier stage startups. And what I would just say for founders is really be thinking about how you want to merchandise yourself in that um, in that landscape, because there's a buyer out there or buyer slash lender out there for you. Um, but it's really just about, um, you know, kind of putting yourself at the right spot on the shelf And I think that Climeworks, you know, they're quite unparalleled. Like there aren't a lot of other companies at their current scale and readiness. And so they're going to be a really good fit for um, a certain type of debt soon. But I don't think that that's going to be super common for a lot of other companies for a while. But um, you know, let's let's put a pin in that and check back in five years or maybe even three years. Who knows? yeah i hope it's three years
1: um so josh i want to end with you and just to ask you are there any other takeaways you've ta- you have from this funding craziness as a founder you know as a recipient anything else we should be thinking about or the car- or our audience should be thinking about
2: i mean we've we've touched on we've touched on the surge in demand we've touched on How supply is going to get there we've talked about some of the pieces of the supply chain and how those are going to be really fun to watch evolve from the outside and from the inside, depending on depending on what you're up to these days, and I think the only thing I really want to end it with is that if. um, If you're listening to this and haven't yet thought that your skills may be some way applicable to working on climate generally or in carbon removal specifically then. I, I would behoove that to you, uh, that you reconsider this, because there's so many ways for people to get involved with climate and carbon removal that uh, that everybody is gonna be able to contribute in some way. And so um, that's, I think my big takeaway for folks here is that this market's not going anywhere. If anything, it's just gonna continue growing. And, uh, and so it's a great time to get in early to the industry, and watch it be built there aren't many other examples that are uh, you know that that I can think of where you're truly watching a new industry be built from the inside there are many of examples of watching new companies within existing industries be built and that's great and super exciting but we there are so many fundamental questions left to answer about how this industry will exist in the future at its huge scale that it's really worth getting into it and getting in the trenches instead of kind of sitting on the sidelines and waiting to see how it goes. Um, it's a ton of fun. It's a lot of hard work. And it's some of the most fulfilling things that I think anybody could be doing. So I think uh, if you're listening and, and are not yet in the space, get in. And uh, one of the things I always try to help folks with is if we can't find a good fit with what we need now at NOIA, then I'm always looking to help people however I can find a good fit for them in whatever way that means. So um you can get in touch with me directly if you want to learn more about that but uh get into it man there's so much stuff going on that it's it's just too much too much to wait even one more day before getting in the middle of
1: oh i love your enthusiasm josh i often tell people that i work with and around like we're building something and we have no model for it we're really just like creating it and it's so fun and interesting to be solving problems like this on a daily basis um, and thank you for joining. So I always we always end with a bit of good news. Josh almost did it for us, or he did do it for us. That was such a nice positive thing. But I'm going to add one little thing. Uh Susan knows this well. Last week, Joe Biden was in our neck of the woods for Earth Day. It was great to have the president here. Also, a little distressing because traffic was terrible, and I got caught in it uh, more than once. But the thing I wanted to announce was or talk about was just that. He announced the protection of old-growth forests within the U.S. The U.S. Forest Service is going to be mandated to do work around that, while also trying to preserve forest, you know, um, economics and jobs. But it was particularly meaningful to me, being from the Pacific Northwest, loving the old-growth forest that I hike in and have been hiking in. And so I'm just really pleased to hear the federal government take a more Upfront interest in this and really push forward hopefully some good policies to maintain our um, forests and let everybody enjoy them because i think susan and i are very fortunate to live in a county that has done a pretty good job of maintaining old growth forests and second growth forests and i hope that the rest of the country you know gets the benefit of those things as well so with that thanks both of you for joining and um, i look forward josh to seeing how the company grows and keeping in touch. And Susan, I will see you in about a month. So thank you both.
2: Thanks, Radhika.
0: Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in an Apple Podcast, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.